0: Good morning, everyone. I have the privilege of preaching this morning from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 to 17, a sermon I've entitled Pursuits and Pitfalls. Those who uh, study communication understand that certain gestures are are universally recognized across cultures. For example, a smile uh, or a frown Uh, typically communicates the same thing regardless of where you go, happiness and sadness, and there isn't a need for translation. Uh, In our world, emojis have sort of risen to this status as well, and and, uh, uh, people have been able to communicate strings of text messages using only little icons and pictures. Maybe you yourself have fallen into that habit as well. Similarly, some images and pictures within a nation have become so iconic that they require no explanation. Uh, And they've taken on uh, a status of of meaning uh, of victory and hope. Think about some of the iconic pictures that Canadians have embraced uh, and that perhaps you've come across. There's one of Terry Fox, and maybe you can picture it now, of him in 1980 running the Marathon of Hope with his prosthetic leg. Or think back to some uh, famous Olympic moments, 2008, Usain Bolt winning the gold member, uh, member medal and striking that lightning bolt pose. Uh, or in 2010, Sidney Crosby following the golden goal and, and charging to celebrate with his teammates. These are iconic images that have uh, metaphors of victory and hope that Canadians have embraced. And in chapter 12 of Hebrews, the author has also been using metaphoric language to paint a picture of the Christian life as a race that believers are called to run with endurance. We just heard a moment ago, verses 12 and 13, where the author has described a few universally understood gestures of drooping hands, of weak knees, of lame feet, And he's used these to help us understand the exhausting struggle that can be part of the Christian life. And this imagery emphasizes the need for endurance and for perseverance to continue running the race set before us by God, who is our sovereign designer and creator of this race, so that one day our hope may be fulfilled of ultimately being in his presence. Now, thankfully, God in his word tells us more than to just have endurance. He gives specific directions on how to endure, outlining a clearly marked path for the Christian race. And in our passage today, God gives commands about what believers are to pursue and warnings about the pitfalls that they are to avoid so that they might persevere well in running the race of faith. Let's turn back to our passage In Hebrews chapter 12, starting at verse 14, reading through to the end of 17, it says, "'Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled.'" That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. I'd like to suggest that the main idea of this passage is that God's commands are given to help believers endure in the race of faith. And they remind us not to allow worldly priorities to cut in on us and distract us from our commitment to Christ so that we would ultimately see God and rejoice in his presence for eternity. And what I'd like to do is trace this main idea through each of the commands given in this passage and look specifically at each one, starting with the first one in verse 14 that tells us to strive for peace. In verse 14, believers are told to strive for peace with everyone. Now, to strive, in this case, means to pursue something aggressively. Believers are to be known as those who aggressively pursue peace in their relationships. They're to do it actively, and they're to put forth effort in making it a priority, Interestingly, this command isn't unique to Hebrews, and perhaps even now you can recall in the New Testament other places where believers are commanded to strive after peace. Two instances come from the Apostle Paul. One, he told the Ephesian church to make sure uh, they make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And then he broadened the boundaries for Romans, saying, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And here in Hebrews, a connection is being made between our endurance in the faith and our striving to maintain peaceful relationships with everyone we encounter, both inside and outside the church. Now, we shouldn't just avoid conflict, but we need to work actively towards peace. Now, also notice that the command is not to achieve peace, with everyone. I don't think that's possible, and we know it's not possible outside of the grace of God in our sinful world. But as followers of Christ, we need to be known for always striving toward it, and certainly the church needs to be characterized by peace and the building of one another up. But why this command? Why strive for peace? Well, actively pursuing peace with those around us practically puts the gospel on display. And it does so powerfully in the lives of those believers who may be facing suffering and hardship and trial. Because striving for peace brings to light the objective peace that believers have received in relationship with God through Christ and Christ's atoning work. We are those who have received God's gospel of peace. And the gospel of peace, remember, is this, that God... In his great love for us, sent his son to die the death we deserve so that our sins may be atoned for. And through faith in him, we are reconciled to God and receive the hope of eternal life. And this amazing gift was made possible only through Christ who made it so that we are no longer enemies with God, but we have peace with him. And this peace we have, it isn't temporary, but it's eternally enduring. And it was all made possible by God's great plan, which he initiated and which he accomplished through Jesus's sacrifice on the cross. And believers, because of this, there should be a noticeable and a growing desire in our lives to allow the reality of our peace with God to flow graciously and generously in our interactions with those around us. And in this way, The reality of the gospel, God's reconciling work in us, is placed on full display for the world to see. Now, pursuing peace doesn't come naturally to us. And often our first inclination is to self-protect or to maybe lash out against those who cause us pain and grief. Just imagine how this instruction would have hit the uh, original audience that it was written to, an audience that was undergoing persecution and trial. They were told to strive for peace with their persecutors. Now think about your situation, and maybe you're sitting there thinking, you know, you don't know the trial that I've been through, the hurt I've experienced at the hands of those around me. Well, in moments like these, believers, we all need to be gently reminded of scripture that calls us to strive for peace even when it goes against our natural inclination. And at the same time, as we do so, we have to rely on God's supernatural power, trusting in him to enable our obedience through faith. It doesn't happen on our own. And this command, just like all of the others we're about to read, I think present us with an incredible opportunity. And the opportunity is this, We have the chance to experience God's power at work within us as we strive to obey him. And as we do, we trust the Holy Spirit to strengthen us as we give over to God our circumstances, as we give over to God our hurt, our pain, our trial, our suffering. Our first command is to strive for peace. The second part of verse 14, we see another command. We are to strive for holiness, We are to strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. When the term holiness is applied to God, it refers to his moral and sinless perfection as well as to his own devotion to displaying his honor and glory in all of creation and particularly through the church. God is holy. When we as believers are called to strive for holiness, it's a command for us to pattern our lives after God's own holiness. We, believers, are to be separated from sin. We are to be completely devoted to God's glory. We are to be set apart and consecrated to the service and worship of God. Now understand when God calls someone to salvation through repentance and faith in Christ, they are made new, they are born again. They are clothed in Christ's righteousness. And it's a picture of a beautiful exchange. Christ's blood atones for our sin-stained hearts and we're covered and clothed with his righteousness. So much so that when God looks at us, He sees us and considers us as holy, not because of anything we've done or anything we merit, but because of his son. This is a positional truth that we can rest on. We have been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life and made righteous and holy through Christ. As believers, though, it's important not only to recognize this positional reality in Christ, but also the calling to live it out practically by living lives that honor God and reflect his holiness. And in this case, strive for holiness means aggressively pursuing lives patterned after God's holiness, allowing ourselves to be transformed by the power of God's spirit, recognizing that we can't accomplish this on our own. But through faith, we rely on God's spirit to help us mortify sin, to kill it in our lives. And repentantly before God, living before him, embracing his transformative work in us. Again, we can ask the question, why this command for holiness? Well, in, this, in a similar way, striving for holiness puts the gospel on display for those both inside and outside the church, and it acts to encourage us in our perseverance in the faith. Our pursuit of holiness empowered by the Spirit of God points to God's work in forming a people for himself, a people that he calls a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for God's own possession, people that he's given present purpose and a future hope, people he's called out to reflect his character and act to bring him glory in this world. God is glorified by our striving for holiness. And this is unlike anything else that exists in our world. And it serves as compelling evidence of the truth and the power of the gospel at work within us. It authenticates the reality of our salvation, that God, by his spirit, is sanctifying us. It serves as authentication of the hope that we possess as God's children. Now, this certainly doesn't mean that we are perfect or sinless. In fact, the struggle against our sinful nature is ongoing And the Apostle Paul knew this well. And his own battle with sin is a powerful example for us. He writes of this in Romans 7, 13 to 25. And we read that despite his best efforts, Paul found himself unable to fully obey Christ. And he ended up committing the very sins he hated. And he ends with a cry of desperation in verse 24, wretched man that I am who can save me from this body of death? Thankfully, that's not where his statement ended. In verse 25, he came to the conclusion that we need to see. He says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The command then to strive after holiness is not simply about trying to conform to a set of outward actions or outward rules, At its heart, it's a challenge to examine where the allegiance of our heart lies. Can we say with Paul that our hearts are so aligned with God's will that our greatest pursuit is to know Christ, to love Christ, to cling to Christ, and Christ alone as our only hope? Pursuing holiness also is crucial for believers. Because of the warning, the author of Hebrews attaches to the command. He says, Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Persevering in our faith requires a daily nurturing and rekindling of our allegiance to Christ, so that our hope in him might one day be fully realized. We are to strive for peace. We are to strive for holiness. And in verse 15 we have some commands phrased in a, in a negative sense. And I'm going to phrase the first one like this, that we are to guard against gracelessness. So after telling believers what they need to strive for, the author moves to caution the church about what to guard against. We read in 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. In a sense, believers, we are to guard against gracelessness within our fellowship. Now, throughout the book of Hebrews, the dominant theme has been that there is no salvation apart from Christ's atoning work. And God's grace finds its fullest expression in Christ alone. And believers can't abandon Christ and maintain any sense of eternal security. Even during hardship and trial and persecution, believers cling to Christ. Interestingly, the author of Hebrews starts his command with, these words. He starts it with, see to it. It's a, a, a plural command. Uh, perhaps you've used something similar if you're parents of children. On your way up the door, maybe you've, uh, over your shoulder, called back, see to it, children, that the dishes get done. Or, see to it, children, that the washing machine doesn't remain idle for my time away. It's a, a plural command that you're giving to the household in order to get some chores done. In the same way, that the command to see to it that no one misses the grace of God is a command to the entire church and everyone in the Christian community to let them know that they have a responsibility to ensure that their brothers and sisters continue to live in the experience of God's saving grace through Christ and that no one misses out on it. Believers, we are called to be ministers of God's grace to one another. Similarly to the way that Jeremiah was a minister of God's grace to the people of Judah. And as the prophet Jeremiah witnessed the outworking of God's judgment for the sins of the people of Judah simultaneously, he reminded them of his covenant loving kindness that was always present, of his faithfulness that would endure, so much so that the people of Judah would never be destroyed. And he writes in Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies, they never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. This is the bedrock of our faith, that even when we experience hardship and suffering and pain and trial, God graciously keeps his promises according to his faithful character. He doesn't abandon us. God is graciously persistent in relationship with his people. This is our testimony, and it's what we are called to minister regularly to each other through word and through action. So the command to see to it that no one misses the grace of God really is a picture of how the church operates in relationship with one another. We watch over one another, so that everyone in the church might be encouraged to grow in holiness, to be able to strive for peace and receive the grace of God needed to endure in faith. And we do this practically by following what scripture lays out for us. We confess our sin to one another. We pray for one another. We stir one another up to love and good works. We love and forgive one another. We teach, we admonish, we preach. We speak the truth in love. We don't neglect any opportunity to remind each other that just as God has extended his mercy and grace to us in salvation, he continues to extend his grace to us daily, sustaining us and enabling us to persevere in our faith. If our congregation were to be cut open, we should bleed the grace of God. It should be that evident. So believers, the challenge then is for us to resist the urge to isolate ourselves from the church, particularly in times of trial and hardship. We need the body of Christ to give us continual reminders of God's ongoing gracious work in our lives to help us endure in the faith. We are to guard against gracelessness. The second part of verse 15, I'll phrase it like this. We are to guard against idolatry. We read, believers are to see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled the phrase root of bitterness points to deuteronomy 29:18 where moses is warning the israelites against turning away from the lord and going to serve the gods of other nations And Moses tells the Israelites to make sure there is no root among them that produces such bitter poison. That bitter poison would be tolerance for idolatry that would inevitably enter the community and corrupt it. And this is ultimately what we are being warned against here in Hebrews. It's the sin of idolatry that needs to be constantly guarded against because it does have the power to spring up and cause trouble and defile many. In the Bible, idolatry isn't just one of many sins. It's really at the root of all of our failures to trust God and live rightly. Whenever we sin, the underlying reason is often an idolatrous desire for something that we prioritize over God. Martin Luther said it like this, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. An idol is whatever claims the loyalty that belongs to God alone. And now we know that in our society and in our lives, there are so many things that would seek and tempt and threaten to usurp God's rightful place of worship and his rightful place of lordship in our lives. And the command and the call to guard against the root of bitterness is a call to guard against all forms of idolatry and ensure nothing takes God's rightful place. This means we have to be vigilant in our actions and our thoughts, preventing anything from occupying a position that would keep us from experiencing the fullness of God's blessing, helping us to endure in our lives because allowing an idolatrous root of bitterness to take hold not only defiles us, but also risks contaminating others, causing them to miss out on God's grace. We're to guard against bitterness. We're to guard against idolatry. The next command in verse 16 says this, see to it that no one is sexually immoral. Here, the author focuses on sexual immorality as a very specific area of concern. The Greek word used to describe all sexual immorality is pornēia, from which we get our English word pornography. Pornēia, however, encompasses any sexual activity that deviates from God's standard. And that standard being that sex is a good gift from God that is meant to be exercised only within the context of marriage between one man and one woman. And so instead of listing every possible sexual sin, God gives us his standard of sexual purity and calls us to live up to it by his grace. And he does so in order to promote the faithful endurance of believers. Why this command? Well, Sexual sin and temptation is one of Satan's most effective tools for destroying lives and hindering people from experiencing joy and peace in relationship with God. We are to guard against any distortion of God's plan for our sexuality. Think of Paul's words to the Ephesians. Don't let there even be a hint of sexual immorality amongst you. We are to carefully guard our actions, carefully guard our attitudes toward it because it's a dangerous trap that leaves believers vulnerable to being led astray. And the author of Hebrews knew this and he wrote about sexual sin because it was a constant and a strong temptation that believers faced in a society that had no restraints on sexual practices. And the same is true for us today. We're bombarded with messages, with images, with ideas from a hyper-sexualized culture that says virtually any kind of consensual activity is good and the only sin is if anyone dare place a moral restriction on it. Now, despite the cultural pressure that we face to view God's moral boundaries as antiquated or outdated, we are called to remain steadfast in upholding the truth of God's word that God is the one who has created sex and he is the only one who has the right to define its use. And joyful submission to the authority of scripture is God's design for us to experience his blessing of endurance in our faith. It's his design for us to experience fullness of joy and satisfaction that comes from following his ways. It's his design for us to follow in order that we would bring him glory. And the Bible makes it clear that sexual sin is not trivial. It impacts our relationship with God. It impacts our relationship with others. And in fact, it it holds the power to defile others in the church as well. Now, brothers and sisters, if you're struggling with sexual sin, I want to see to it this morning that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. There is hope in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ and the ongoing sanctifying work of his spirit, particularly in this area of our lives. Again, I go back to the Apostle Paul and want you to think about what he said to the struggling church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul lists all sorts of heinous sins that will keep people from the kingdom of God but he gets to his point and makes it very plainly. And he says, but some of you were like this, but now you've been washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by his spirit. This doesn't diminish the reality of our sin, but rather it points us to our hope for freedom from our sin. And that hope is Christ and Christ alone. It's in him that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Our redemption and freedom from sin comes only through the blood of Christ. And so it's to Christ we flee. Flee to Jesus, who is our sympathetic high priest, who understands our weakness and is able to help in our time of need. Flee to Jesus, our great high priest, who has been tempted in every way, yet was without sin. Flee to Jesus, who sits at the Father's right hand and is able to help us overcome sin and temptation. Flee to Jesus, whose broken body is the curtain that we walk through to gain access to the Father, who says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The same Father, who out of the glorious riches of his grace empowers us by his spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, enabling us to live in a way that honors him. The same spirit who helps us overcome the desires of the flesh and live in a way that is pleasing to God, pursuing holiness and righteousness. We flee to Jesus. Come to Jesus because we are powerless on our own to set ourselves free from our sin or to cleanse ourselves from our own unrighteousness. And so with our hope in him alone, we come relying solely on his grace, solely on his power to free us from our sin. And here's the hope and God who is gracious and faithful to his word will help us overcome our sin and set us free. The final part of verse 16 is another command to avoid all unholiness. Some translations may say godlessness, like Esau. And we read here that Esau isn't an example like the other people mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. Esau is a negative example that we are to avoid at all costs. Let's read again, starting in verse 16. See to it that no one is sexually immoral, Or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, this means that we have to recall the story of Esau that begins in Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25 that tells of the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. They had two boys, Jacob and Esau, Jacob the younger, Esau the older. And we're told that Esau was a man of the fields who loved to hunt, and Jacob uh, preferred to be at home. And one day, Esau re- returns home after hunting, and, and he's famished. And Jacob, who's been at home, Uh, has prepared stew and he offers some to his brother. And Esau says, yes, give me some stew. I'm famished. And Jacob says, okay, sell me your birthright first. Now, as the older son, Esau possessed a special inheritance right called the birthright, which included a double portion of the father's inheritance when the father passed, It meant that he would become the eventual patriarch of the family, and it included a special blessing the father would bestow on the oldest son. But despite the value and the God-ordained significance of the birthright, Esau, in a foolish moment, agrees to this trade because of his hunger, and Jacob ends up gaining the birthright. And later we read providentially, that at the the time that Isaac was passing away, Jacob does in fact receive Esau's birthright. And despite Esau's pleas and the tears that he brought, the original blessing couldn't be revoked and it couldn't be taken away. And Esau was devastated because he had despised and rejected his birthright. Now Esau's behavior speaks volumes about his nature. That in fact, he was unholy. He was a godless man who cared little for spiritual things. And he let his flesh dominate in a moment of weakness and was unable to gain or regain what he had lost. And Esau's sin wasn't just a momentary lapse in judgment, but rather it was a complete disregard for his spiritual heritage, something he gave up willingly for the satisfaction of his physical appetite. And the point the author of Hebrews is trying to make is clear that in our moments of weakness, maybe brought on by trial or hardship or suffering, we are to resist the temptation to disregard the holy things of God and instead give in to our our, our physical appetites for temporary relief. No, we must not impulsively trade the eternal blessing of Christ for the momentary physical indulgences that present themselves to us. We are to prioritize our eternal relationship with God over the temporal and fleeting things of this world. So how do we do this? How do we live in faithful obedience to this command or any of the others that we've read today? Well, as Pastor Jude reminded us last week, I think it is important to consider how we might prepare ourselves now in this moment for the trials and the hardships that may come our way, for the temptations that we'll face that will make it difficult or challenging to obey. There are certain things I think that we can settle in our hearts in advance so that we might be well-equipped to resist temptation and remain steadfast in our faith and rise to the challenge, and obey what God has commanded. And I'd like to suggest three specific actions, and they all start with the letter F, and those are to foster faith, to follow repentance, and to firmly cling to grace. We are to foster faith. Obedience to this command, or any of the commands we've read, require us to foster faith. Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Romans 14.23, anything that doesn't come from faith is sin. This is the life of the believer. As believers, we have faith in Jesus as our Redeemer. God, the Father, as our provider. The Holy Spirit as our source of power and our comforter. This is how we live. We are people of faith. So obeying God's commands is not just a matter of following a set of rules. But rather, it's a work of faith in which God transforms the way we live our lives. And our faith-filled obedience is marked, I think, by three key elements. First, it means that our decisions and our actions are guided by the goodness and the truth found in God's word. And as we evaluate our actions against the absolute and the enduring standards of scripture, we seek to align our lives with what God has revealed as good, including his promises, including his commands, including his warnings. We come under the authority of scripture. Second, we trust in God's power to enable us to live in accordance with his will. We recognize that we don't have the strength within ourselves to obey but instead we rely on the power of God at work in us to accomplish his good purpose. And third, our faith-filled obedience is motivated by a growing desire to bring glory to Jesus, which is evidence of the sanctifying work of his spirit within us, where we seek to live in a way that makes Jesus look glorious in our lives, recognizing him as our great high priest and mediator of the new covenant. And we foster faith by knowing and loving the one who has called us to himself. We foster faith. Secondly, we follow repentance. A repentant heart is a hallmark of the citizens of the kingdom of God and it's evidence of the reign of God's king in their hearts. And true repentance does involve turning away from sin and toward God, but it's not just about performing actions to earn favor. Psalm 51 points us in the right direction and tells us that what God desires is a broken and a contrite heart, which entails an inward transformation rather than just external actions. God wants us, in fact, to approach him with godly grief over our sin and trust in his power and goodness to forgive and cleanse us, not with shame and condemnation that the enemy would want to heap on us, because in God's presence there is freedom and there's grace found in Christ. So how do we cultivate this broken and contrite heart? I don't have anything revolutionary except to say, and scripture will back me up, that we just ask God for it. We pray and ask God for a heart that's broken and contrite before him that humbly and regularly seeks him to depend on his mercy and grace and power to transform us and reproduce the character of Christ in us as Steve prayed earlier in his prayer. Lastly, we firmly cling to God's grace. Obedience to God's commands requires us to cling to his grace, particularly in moments of our Failure, as there is no need in our life that will ever surpass the grace of God. God alone is the one who keeps us. He alone is the one who gives us hope for our perseverance in the faith. However, our perseverance isn't passive. It's not something that happens outside of us, but rather it happens in us and through us. And what God has commanded in the passage we read today is an invitation to participate in the process of our perseverance in the faith. As we see to it, as we pursue those things that God desires to cultivate in us. So how do we do this? Well, I think it's through the development and the continual nurturing of our spiritual habits and disciplines. We read our Bible, we pray, we gather regularly, with our brothers and sisters for worship. And these disciplines and these spiritual habits are not motivated by duty, but rather by joy in the great reward that awaits us who persevere. And in knowing that we enjoy Jesus now and forever, Jesus is the great end of our perseverance. So the calling is this, let's cling to God's grace that's ours in Christ and turn ourselves, our eyes away from ourselves and to the object of our faith, Jesus, as we strive to obey. Would you pray with me this morning? Gracious Father, I praise you for your word. Lord, I thank you and praise you for the sovereign calling you've given us to run the race of faith with endurance. And I praise you that you alone make it possible for us to do this by your grace and power and work in us by your Holy Spirit. So Father, I pray for our church, West London, help us to continue to foster our faith in you, you who have called us by your own glory and goodness, knowing that your divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. In faith, help us to seek to align our lives with what you've declared in your word, including the warnings, including the commands that we've read this morning. And in faith, help us to trust in your power to enable us to live in accordance with your will and to grow in us a a desire to bring glory to Jesus in all areas of our lives. And Father, I pray that you would help us to follow after repentance, to cultivate in us a broken and contrite heart before you over our sin as we depend on your mercy and your grace and your power to transform us to become more like Christ. Father, help us to cling to your grace, knowing that what you've invited us to participate in through obedience to your commands is to be a witness of your mighty power at work in us, your gospel of peace put on display for the world to see. Father, be lifted up and glorified in our church. Lord, and would you help us to endure faithfully, knowing that the end of our, our journey is not uncertain, but it is certain and that's to spend eternity in your presence, Father, having realized the goal of our faith. It's all of these things I pray in the precious name of Jesus, amen.